This morning we're going to continue in our Colossians series with a message entitled Feeding Our Souls. And we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2 if you want to turn there in your Bibles or look at the handout. Um, We're going to be in verses 6 through 8 and then 16 through 23. And if you're one of the people who listen to us by podcast, we usually have about 20 people every week that listen to us by podcast who listen to it within a week and then that number will go up to 50 to 100 within a few weeks. So you may have never seen me, and if you've never seen me, I have a few extra pounds. I started gaining weight after I left the military and started jobs that were a little less physically active, but I carried the Army appetite with me. And since the late 90s, I've been on virtually every diet plan you can think of to lose weight. All of them helped to get a little bit of weight off, but eventually really didn't work. The best one I had was called the Omni Plan. It uses HCG to trick your body into increasing your metabolism. I lost 80 pounds on that one, and I was at my lowest weight in 20 years, and that's how I was when I moved up here. Then nursing school happened. Stress eating, not sleeping, trying to keep up with working full time, working for the church, um, and doing everything else that I do in the community, and um, kind of took its toll on me and gained a lot of weight, which I'm trying to lose now. But I didn't prepare this, a message today, this morning, around my chubbiness. I wanted to open this way to get you thinking about an old saying, and that is, you are what you eat. If that's the case with me, I am quick trip. <laughs> but what is true in the physical is also true in the spiritual. You are what you eat also applies spiritually. What we consume comes out in how we live our lives. And in particular, it has to do with our spiritual lives. As we continue our study in the book of Colossians, I want you to see this in relationship to how we think about Jesus and how we can sometimes put things in his place that are simply just not of him. And learn to recognize and discard things that are counterfeit to the gospel. Let's start out with prayer. Father God, we ask, Lord, that you be with us this morning. That you open up our hearts and spirit to receive your word. That you help that word to penetrate to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Help it to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. So that we can grow in you, Lord. And set aside those things that are holding us back from knowing you more deeply. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you do that this morning in each one of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So this, we're going to break up this section of Colossians into three different parts. And the first of the three sections, I want to talk about focus. Since focus determines reality, it's important that we have our focus on the right things. And one of the biggest things in our life that determines how we look at life, how we react to life, how we see life, is what we focus on. And in our case, this focus should be on thanksgiving. In Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6, it says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, Continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. 
See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. And when I was in Kenosha, I was a volunteer chaplain at the hospitals. Oftentimes when you're a volunteer chaplain, it's not the patient that asks to see you. It's sometimes the patient's family, sometimes the staff, sometimes um, just somebody who calls who's not even there will call for the chaplain to come and visit their loved one. And sometimes it's because they're concerned for them. This, this patient may be going through an end-of-life situation or have a serious diagnosis that they're stressed out about. They just need somebody to talk to and... So most of the time when I went to, to be a chaplain to these people, I got called in cold, meaning I have no prior relationship with this person. I didn't know they existed before they called. And so you sit down and you kind of have a break the ice conversation. And one of the questions I would ask is, apart from what is going on like right now, you being in the hospital, what do you have to be thankful for? I would ask them that. And... There's two reasons for that. Is one, you really could judge their spiritual life by how they answered. You really could judge, you know, where, where they were at spiritually. And the second thing you could judge is where their fear level was at or their state of mind was by their answer. And it gives you a starting point to start having some more serious conversations. And you can tell a lot about a person when you ask them that question. What are you most thankful for? And I'm going to ask you that this morning. I don't want you to answer out loud, but answer that in your own mind. What are you most thankful for right now? Some people may say, well, I'm really thankful for my spouse. Some people may say, well, man, I, I really love my kids. I'm, I'm really thankful for them. Some people may say, a, a treasured belonging or house or property. Some people might even say their job if they really enjoy where they work. And these aren't bad things to be thankful for. We should be thankful for all the blessings God has given us in this life. But what happens if those things are taken away? I don't want to be a bummer on Sunday morning, but sooner or later, everything on this earth will be taken away. Fortunately, the Bible gives us an example of how to react when everything in your life is taken away. About the same time Abraham was walking the earth, there was a man named Job. Job was one of the richest men in the world of his time. He had flocks, he had servants, he had everything you could possibly want in his time in history. And he was a godly man. So godly, in fact, that the Father God started bragging on him in heaven. Well, Satan had happened to be there, and he heard that, and he said, yeah, you know, listen, God, the only reason he follows you is because you bless him. I mean, he's just here for the gifts. He's just here for the, the bling, if you will. You, you take that away from him, he'll curse you to your face. So God told Satan, no, that's not, that's not it, but go, go ahead and try it. Just take all of it away and see what happens. You don't get to harm him, but, but just take it all away. So Satan is unleashed in Job's life, and he's about to have a very bad day. I'm going to quick paraphrase what happens in Job 1 and then, and then read the last part. 
As Job's going about his day, a messenger comes and says that a warring tribe has come and killed all the servants in that area and stolen all the livestock. Just as that servant's finishing up, another messenger runs in and says, fire from heaven burned up all the sheep and servants in another area that he owned. Just then another servant comes in and says another warring tribe came and put the rest of the servants to death and stole the remainder of the livestock. So everything is gone in his life. His whole business in less than two minutes is up in smoke. But the Bible doesn't record Job reacting to any of this yet. In fact, it seems like Job is just kind of taking this in stride. That is until the next servant comes. The next servant comes and says, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking, and a mighty wind came and collapsed the house on top of them, and they're all dead. Imagine that. In the course of two minutes, you go from the wealthiest man in the world to less than the bottom. Even his children are taken away from him. Job's response in Job chapter 1, verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robes and shaved his head. He then fell to the ground, and look how he falls to the ground, though. In worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. You know, sometimes we can read things in the Bible and not really grasp the depth of what has just happened. Again, he's lost everything. Everything he has spent his lifetime building up. His flocks, his business, beloved servants. He is left with nothing, but he didn't respond to that. But then he lost all of his children. Wouldn't you be crazy with grief if that was you? But look what he says. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job worshipped. He worshipped. The key to worship is giving thanks. And the ability to give thanks during the worst moments of your life comes from a life focus of being thankful for all that God has given you and done for you in life. You see, Job had this decided before he had thousands of camels, thousands of goats, or thousands of sheep. All of this was a blessing that God gave him. Job knew that the servants who served him so faithfully that he was friends with were a treasure from the Father who loved him. Even his children who the scriptures seem to indicate he loved more than all that other stuff, he saw them as gifts from God. And that is why Job could have this reaction. Worship. Worship. Giving thanks to God. It didn't take away from the love he had from his children. It didn't take away his appreciation for all that God had done in his business. It simply put them in the proper place. Gifts to be stewarded and cherished and, and bring up thanks, giving toward God. God was the giver of those gifts and was recognized as a source of everything. Therefore, he deserved the worship. 
What that shows us this morning is that thanksgiving is the key to an abundant life. It's a key to inoculating yourself against all the vicissitudes and changes and, and everything that can come against you in life is to have a heart of thanksgiving. It will make you an overcomer no matter what comes. It makes you resistant to every negative breeze that you might feel. The thankful life is set upon a foundation whose cornerstone is Jesus Christ. That cornerstone is a rock that will never be moved, shaken, or fail you. That's how you live in this world. Increasingly, that is how we have to live in this world. As bizarro as it's getting, it seems like we're living in an asylum and the, and the inmates are in charge. Be thankful to God for everything he has given you through Jesus and live for that. As a young Christian, it took a long time for me to get this right. I lived in a constant state of anxiety about messing up, about making God angry, or losing my salvation if I even thought something bad. I really didn't have a good grasp on the, on the gospel and, and, and Jesus, and my belief more, more closely reflected karma than Christ. That is, I had to do more good than bad because I had to have those scales even out. I was just starting Bible school when our church's senior pastor resigned. I was on the pastoral search committee, and after several months, we found a couple of pastoral candidates. One of them came to have a weekend with us, and we were driving the candidate around Kenosha and showing, showing him around. And, the, past, and the, the person we had there, he asked about the spiritual climate of the city. And I gave kind of a really depressing answer based on my bad theology. I said, well... It's horrible. <laughs> we have five bars to every church. People are proud. They don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to be told they're living wrong. They don't want to hear about the gospel. And he sat silent for a moment, and then he said something that forever changed me, forever got my, my brain right, if you will. He said, let me tell you something, son. I know you're studying for the ministry, and you got to get this right in your head. He goes, People will never want to be told how to live, especially church people. They don't want to be told. As church leaders, our job is to get them in proper relationship with the Savior. If you do that, the rest of it takes care of itself. If you try to change behavior, you'll burn out in under a year, and they'll probably throw you out of the church. But if you hold up to Jesus to them, if you stress the baptism of the Holy Spirit and teach them to live in his power, you'll have com a completely reformed and on-fire congregation. Totally changed the way that I thought about church and ministry. And it showed me that Jesus is the answer to every question. I mentioned a moment ago as a young Christian, I had a bad understanding about what our faith taught. And I want to explore some of that a little bit as we look into the next section of Colossians that deals with the distractions from thanksgiving. 
In Colossians 2, starting in verse 16, it says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. There are two things I want to talk about from this scripture we just read. The first one is legalism. What is legalism? Legalism means that you're trusting in something other than Christ for your salvation. It means you're trusting in observances or acts or ceremonies, anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ to make you pleasing to God. And the second thing is comparison comes from legalism. It's using any of the above to make yourself feel superior to someone else. Let's start with legalism. Interesting fact from the New Testament. Who was Jesus the most hard on? When it came to who he, when he came to talking to people and, and sharing the gospel, who was he the hardest on? Was it the prostitute who sold themselves for money or worked in the temples leading God's people astray to worship idols? Was it the tax collector who was greedy and took more than required, keeping the difference for himself? Maybe it was a terrorist group called the Zealots who carried out assassinations in the name of God. Today, we call that terrorists. We'd be sending out special forces after these guys or dropping bombs on them from drones. Yet Jesus chose one of these guys to be his disciple, Simon the Zealot. The scripture doesn't record Jesus really throwing rebukes at those people. Do you know who Jesus did rebuke and use the strongest language to condemn? And when I say strongest language, I mean just on this side of profanity, I mean, he didn't swear. I'm not saying he swore, but he got pretty darn close in in the original language. And it was salty, what he said. He was not smiling when he said these words. In Matthew 23, verse 23, he said, Woe to you, teachers of, of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the outside of the cup and dish, and then the inside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, 
but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. That's some pretty strong stuff there, isn't it? He, he, he vented a little bit. We can't learn to develop a heart filled with thankfulness if you trust on anything other than the work of Jesus on the cross to make you right with God. If you trust on anything else that's pride, and God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's not saying that obedience isn't important to your salvation. It's, it's important. But obedience is important to help us grow as Christians and receive his blessings and his rewards. Obedience leads to maturity in Christ. If you think about it, it was just like when you were growing up. You don't give the keys to a car to the five-year-old. You have to let them mature enough to be able to have that responsibility as they grow up. The same is true in the church. The more mature you get, the more freedom, rewards, and responsibilities you can be trusted with. But obedience is a result of salvation, not the cause of salvation. It's a fruit of salvation, not the tree which bears the fruit. The, that tree is Jesus. It comes from him. Whether you're here right now or listening to it by podcast, if you think there's anything you can do to go to heaven because of what, or that you can't go to heaven because of what you have done or what you are doing, listen carefully. Your salvation is all Jesus' responsibility. It's completely dependent on him. We call it the finished work of Christ on the cross. Because that's what it is. Finished. Jesus even said, it is finished. As Romans says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And that law of sin and death means trusting in works for your salvation. And if you are here or in the podcast and you struggle with this, of a voice or a feeling inside of you that says you're never going to be good enough, God can never love you, and that God will, will never forgive you, you're beyond his forgiveness, forget it. You might as well just keep doing what you're doing. There's no way you can go to hell. I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. That's the devil speaking to you, not God. Receive the gospel into your heart. Receive the gospel into your mind and spirit. Let the Holy Spirit wash over you right now and experience that cleansing that can only come through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you do that, living a life of thankfulness will not be a problem for you. Do you know what else is destroyed when we get rid of this legalistic mindset? Comparison. Comparison, because they go hand in hand. The root of legalism is a desire not to please God, but to make ourselves feel good because we're better than everyone else. And this pandemic of comparison we're living in today 
is killing more people than COVID could ever have dreamed of. Especially, especially our young people on social media. I read report after report, study after study of teen suicide based off of social media posts or because they didn't live up to the persona that they've, they've created on social media. And as soon as it's, it's exposed, the internet bullies and trolls descend, destroy that, that person, and they end up taking their own life. It's because their self-image self was based on, a, on sand, on a flimsy foundation of popularity and not on the rock that is Jesus Christ. You know, when something about spirituality comes up at work, I always get this kind of response. Well, I know I'm going to hell, so it doesn't really matter. And they say things like that because they're comparing themselves with something that they may know who goes to church. My response to that is only if you choose to. Did you know that heaven and hell are a choice? Heaven's a choice and hell's a choice. Choose wisely. God wants you to wants to bring you into his eternal kingdom. He has done everything he can to bring you to him, even giving up his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's why the root of thankfulness is getting rid of legalism and comparison in our life and being thankful to him who did everything. I'm going to close today with a prayer based on the last few verses of Colossians chapter 2. If all everybody wants to rise. Father, we come to you this morning admitting that we are a needy people. Admitting that we are a people who have been influenced, Father, by popular culture, by bad theology, by just the things of this world. Cleanse the thoughts and hearts of everyone here, Lord. Father, help us to all die to the basic principles of this world which would choke out living a life of thanksgiving and instead trade that in for legalism. Let that die right now in the name of Jesus. Your word says that heaven and earth will pass away someday, but you and your word will never pass away. So help us to put all of our energy, all of our focus, all of our thanksgiving into you and you alone, Lord. Strip away all these bad ideas. Strip away all that horrible doctrine. Strip away mostly the lies of the enemy that he keeps trying to put into our hearts and souls and minds. Make us deaf to the devil, Lord. Crush any of those lies right now that has existed in our spirits for far too long. Let us hear only your voice in our spirits. And protect us from that of the enemy. Father God, I just pray for your people now. I ask, Lord, that you just help them to refocus their lives. To be that of 
or to be that that gives thanks to you, that focuses on the things you have given us in this life. Father, equip them to share the gospel. Equip them to live a life before unbelievers that would cause the unbeliever to say, what is different about you? How come you, you don't seem to ever be bothered by the things going on? And Father God, I ask that you be with your people this week. Be with them as they, they live through this chaos that you've called us to live in, Lord. And let us be a thankful people. Father, I ask this in your name. Amen.